Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey, everyone. This is Jay Kevin McHugh here, the host of Sheer Clarity. As you may know by now, it's a leadership podcast about leadership by attraction. And I have another terrific interview here today. On the other end of the line, I have Dale Dawson. Dale is an investment banker, entrepreneur, and a founder, chair and CEO of Bridge to Rwanda. I will absolutely have him tell you about it because it is a fantastic story, an incredible program. He serves on Presidential Advisory Council, the Rwandan president for Paul Kagame. He's on the boards of the Halftime Institute and Founders Advisors, and he's on the investment committee of Diamond State Ventures. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about his path and his background, as we like to do on our podcast. So for now, I just want to welcome Dale to Sheer Clarity. How are you? Thank you, Kevin. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's delightful to be here. So why don't you start by telling uh, anybody who might be listening a little bit about your day job? Like, what what are you doing like right now? <laughs> then, then we'll work our way into the rest of your life. <laughs> sure, no problem. I'm the founder and CEO of a U.S. nonprofit called Bridge to Rwanda. And uh, it's an organization that we founded in 2007 at a time when I was advising President Paul Kagame of the Republic of Rwanda. And I had gotten to know him over a few years doing some other projects in Rwanda. He asked me to join his advisory council. And in the early days of being on that advisory council, the president and his ministers began to explain to us that obviously Rwanda had had suffered a horrible genocide in 1994. We were a dozen years past that. And the country had been peaceful for seven or eight years. They had put in a new constitution, but they were about the serious business of building a new nation, which was a fascinating opportunity for someone who came out of the business world to meet with people who were trying to build a country. And they were much more sophisticated and more thoughtful than I could have imagined. They were students of the Asian tigers. They had very closely studied what Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan had done from the 1960s until the early 2000s. And knowing that those Asian countries had been as impoverished, as devastated as they were in the 60s, and then to see them being some of the wealthiest, most progressive countries in the world, these African leaders wanted to know how did that happen? What was the secret sauce? What was the process? They began to educate me on what those Asian countries had done and how they had gone about building world-class societies and globally competitive industries. And one of the things that they then turned to us and said was, those countries learned to to build an international network of friends that they could rely on. And those friends, actually helped them in two different ways to accelerate the growth of their economies. 
One was they built foreign businesses in their country and they encouraged other foreigners to come build businesses and enterprises in these Asian countries. And that's what the Rwandans ask us to do. But the other action that they needed, which was complementary to bringing in foreign investors, was can you create opportunities for some of the brightest young people in our country of Rwanda to be able to study abroad, to be able to get a scholarship and go abroad and learn what it's like to be in a first world country and to see first world developed country kind of activities and then get those young people to come back. And given now their global sophistication, could they help us build industries and and institutions that can compete with anybody in the world? So we created Bridge Rwanda in 2007 as a nonprofit to help the country of Rwanda do those two things, to encourage foreign investors to come in and to create opportunities for students to study abroad. Powerful. I want to sort of figure out how how the heck you got there to the beginning of that. Just run me through a little bit of of growing up, Dell Dawson, and and <laughs> and walk me through your path and how you arrived here because this is fascinating. <laughs> I grew up in Texas. My father was a milkman. My parents were family entrepreneurs. I went to had a great growing up and went to University of Texas got a degree in accounting, wanted to be a businessman, an entrepreneur. I ended up joining KPMG, the big accounting firm. Oh, yeah. Worked my way up that ladder for for nine years, became a partner, became a national director of the U.S. insurance practice, left there to become an investment banker for a private, large private family-owned firm called Stevens, Inc. in Arkansas, which had taken Walmart public. Oh, well. I moved there in my early 30s to build a, an investment banking practice and merger and acquisition practice. I uh, did that for a number of years. Ended up, Stevens was very entrepreneurial itself, was always buying businesses. I helped them. We bought a business in truck parts and I built a company, one of the largest independent truck parts distributors in the United States and sold it to AutoZone when I was 46. Wow. So it was it was a fun, fun business career. I learned how to advise clients. I learned how to start buy and start businesses. I got to operate a pretty good sized company. And at you know, my late 40s, I stepped back, I sat back and said, What's what's next? I went back to Stevens with the idea I would buy another business, do something else. But I never had, I kind of lost my edge. I lost the passion to do that. And it probably was because all of those previous experiences, I was, my learning curve was very steep and I was excited about learning something new. And when I reached that point in my late forties, that learning edge wasn't there. Hmm. And I felt like I was treading water and kind of looking for something that would engage me in the same kind of passion that I'd had for the first 25 years after college. I ultimately decided that passion was really a gift from God and that if he was turning it on and turning it off, that I needed to think about how he defines success. 
And the more I looked into that, the more I realized that success was really about having a, a passion to improve the lives of other people, hmm. which had never really been my focus. Right. Did you have that as an awakening or was it over time that, you know, was it a year or two of this passionless state and you just kept wondering and then one day the lights well, it went was, on? Or did, it did take, it, it was over a, a four or five year period. It was over a period of trying to re-engage in business development, trying to buy businesses. I ended up running investment banking again for the Steve, for Stevens. There were opportunities. These were things I knew how to do. There was an, you know, it, it was fun. It was competitive, but it wasn't particularly meaningful. It, it wasn't the thing that stirred me the way it had for the first 25 years. Yeah. The conclusion I reached was that I needed to identify something else in my life that would, uh, would stir the same kind of passions. And I concluded eventually that, it, you know, I didn't know what that would be, but I, I concluded it was not going to be managing 50 investment bankers. And so I resigned from my positions, kind of went to the house and said, okay, God, let's, I'm available. What are you going to bring into my life that's going to light that flame again? So when you were in that first part and you were leading others and you were leading an enterprise and you were building a business, were you conscious at the time of what kind of leader you were and what kind of principles and values and style that you you were affecting? You know, I'd had some good role models in my life of people who had, um, I'd watched them build teams. I'd watched them accomplish great things. I knew that that identifying very talented people and giving them clarity as to what it was we were going to do together, getting them to buy into that, giving them plenty of rope to use their own creativity and their own initiative to be responsible for something. The one thing that I, I always was very conscious of was hiring the very best people I could, people who were self-motivated, people who were as interested in their own personal development as I was, and getting them on the same team and, and convincing them that we all had a common goal that would help all of us is that I, I tended to work with very talented people and I gave them as much clarity as to purpose as possible. And then I gave them a lot of rope to decide how they were going to get there. That all boats floated when you had people working together like that. So that was clearly my leadership style. When you mentioned uh, mentors in the process, were there mentors who were sort of teaching you that, that approach? The most influential person was my dad. My dad was, uh, as he was a milkman, but he was ended up going back to work for Borden's eventually and rose up in that company. And I watched him. He had went through a period of his career where we moved around a lot in the, the Southwest to different cities where he would take over milk plants and milk operations and things like that. And I watched him go in and build relationships with people and go in at five o'clock in the morning and work with the guys in the, in the warehouses. And, you know, I watched him build relationships with people that were respectable and dignified and give people purpose. And so I had a, a great mentor in my own dad as to how do you treat people? How do you mobilize them? 
how do you help them aspire to do things together at a level that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do? So that that was the primary one. When I got into the business world and, and further down the road, Jack Stevens, who I went to work for, had built the firm. The one of some of the things I learned from Jack, Jack was a very modest man. He was he was very quiet, but he was a billionaire who you know worked with people like Sam Walton and Tom Tyson and J.B. Hunt, and he was the chairman of the Augusta Golf, you know, the Masters Golf Tournament. He was a man that almost no one knew, and yet he he knew how to build friendships and relationships with people, and he knew how to identify talent and entrepreneurs, and he was an extraordinarily talented man at building a business and a life that was connected with extraordinary friendships, and I learned to value those the value of having a network of friends. Amen. I wonder if today that kind of lesson, that kind of value set is being as prominently mentored and coached and developed. I'm curious if you, if you feel that's a dying sort of value system, given what you see in the, in the world as it operates today, I have a bias, I guess, when I see so much communication taking place in a non-personal way. It's faster over text or email or Slack or whatever other app of the moment is for people to feel like they have friendships and connections. And of course, you know, by the time we air this, maybe in the spring, late spring, who knows where we are with the COVID piece, you know? I'd be curious if, you ha- if you've noticed anything different in the world of business, or at least with the kids you're in connection with, with the bridge to Rwanda, are you still seeing it, that value of friendship at the way you'd learned it from your dad and Jack? Sure. I think it's just as important today. I think that the media, business media in particular, doesn't really highlight the importance significance or the importance of relationships and friendships of developing a a relationship of trust with people, whether they be your own team or they be your clients or your be your suppliers or your vendors. I think that people who are actually successful today are just as conscious of building those relationships as they were in the past. And the truth is, is that with emails and Zoom calls and things like that, it actually is an extraordinary leverage to maintain relationships with a much larger network of people than you we could in the past. Yeah. So I think all things like that, technology have two, you know, there's two sides of that blade. Yes. But I do think that working with people you know and trust and like and building those relationships continue to be taught and mentored. And I think that with technology today, you can even be more effective at it. But I don't necessarily think, I don't know that at any time when business media talked about what made people successful, you don't see lots of articles on people's networks of friends. Right. But the truth is that that, that is Boy. the most successful I know, people I know, particularly in diverse activities is they, they invest a lot of time in their circle of friends. Right, right. Well, you know, when you say investing time, what, you know, what does that look like? 
Is it as simple as a phone call or a handwritten note or uh, doing an act of service? If somebody wanted a, a quick uh, top 10 things that what, if you're going to maintain a network or, or develop one or create one, what are you doing when you're actually doing that? What are the things that are happening? I think all of those steps are important. You know, I think email is the quickest way to reach out and touch base with somebody and ask them a question or see how they're feeling or doing. I think that telephone calls are not as often as texts are, are emails, but they are also extremely valuable. And then the least used today at all is actual written notes. Right. But, you know, I've, I've had some wonderful friends and note who, who communicated that way. And that today getting a personal note from somebody is so rare that you absolutely. It jumps you know, out. <laughs> yeah, it jumps out. You, you, you acknowledge it. But I, I think it's also getting to know people and their families and their dreams. We have a, mm. a training we do at Bridge to Rwanda when we train these young African leaders. We talk about how do you, how do you become a leader in an organization or a trade group or a team? And we tell them there's two steps you have to do to become a leader that almost always will work. And the first one is, is that you have to take the time to go talk to every single person and ask them about their dreams and their family. And you have to listen and you have to, to hear what they say. And then the second thing is that whenever there is a task that no one else wants to do, you have to volunteer to do it. And that if you're in a, a class, an organization, a trade group, something like that, if you do those two things, if you take the time to actually get to know people and their personal passions or their, their family and their dreams, and you volunteer to assume responsibility, you will become the leader of that group. It, it's almost inevitable that people will look to you as the person that's going to help them decide what to do next. Do you think there's a state of a person's character and, and inner sense of peace and well-being that is precedent to being able to do that? I ask it from this perspective. It sounds like it's implied that it is a genuine interest. <laughs> sure. Versus Absolutely. I'm checking my list. Okay, I got to meet with this guy and I got to ask him about, okay, A, dreams, B, family. And then I look at my watch. Uh, he's going a long time on the dream thing. Uh, okay, enough of that. Can I talk to your family? You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm just – sure. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's implied, but I want to talk about it because part of my uh, my mantra in, in my work is people have to be self aware about the what's going on inside their own place, and you can't pour love and caring and friendship from a from a cup that doesn't have an abundance of it. And if you're tangled up in your own resentments and challenges and wounds and difficulties, I'll just let you maybe weigh in on that, uh, this idea of genuine. I would say that the value and the importance of friendships, of truly knowing people, caring about people, came later in life to me. You know, those years as a, as a tax consultant and investment banker, and even, even as a CEO, these relationships were important, but they were probably more transactional, is that, that I, needed to, I needed to know them I need to understand what made them tick. They need to know I cared about them. 
but there was a transactional element of that. After I moved past that investment banking life and I started building, looking for how was I going to find real meaning and recharge the passion in my life, I've discovered that those friendships, those relationships, actually knowing those people has been the most invaluable, important part of the work that I was doing. That the work itself, while we came, we have come together and we've taken on challenges and we've done projects and stuff, that the real treasure in the life, my life is those friendships of those people. And so I, I it, it took me a long time. It was after 50 that, that while I always knew those relationships were important, they came to have value to me in and of themselves, whether or not we went out and did something together or not. Boy, I think you're right spot on the world of, of relationships. And I watch it today because the speed at which things is, are moving is also intensified. The idea of being, of being patient and slow moving, I think our, you know, it's that double-edged sword that you mentioned, you know, it's the ugly part of this, the sword that everything's fast, everything's demanding. And so now it lends itself to a transactional relationship. I just need to talk to you long enough to get what I need and then I'm moving on. <laughs> right. So the message I'm hearing is, is you came to that late. Yeah. It was not part of the first 25 years after college. It was, it came after 50. It came when I, when I moved beyond the investment banking and and that and I started to say, how do I use the skills, experiences, the networks that I have yeah. have been given and blessed with to actually improve someone else's life? And that was opened up to me. I, I met an Anglican bishop from Rwanda when right about the time I stepped down from all my investment banking. And he invited me to come to Rwanda, which is a I didn't know anything about it. You know, being working in poor countries was never how my list of activities, but there was something incredibly inspiring about these leaders that I met in this little country of Rwanda who had suffered this extraordinary tragedy, whose task was so overwhelming in terms of poverty and trauma and defense and violence stuff that they stepped into these roles and into these responsibilities and were trying to build a nation that aspired to the highest values of any place in the world. And it was, it was just extraordinarily inspiring and humbling to think that, you know, I was coming from the wealthiest, most sophisticated country in the world into this environment and meeting these people whose hopes and dreams and aspirations were all to as, as sophisticated or as high as mine. And they had so little to work with and they were working so hard to do it. It was an honor just to meet them and to listen to them and to hear their dreams and talk about what they were wanting to accomplish. And you couldn't help, but say, you know, I can help. I you. can, I there's can something I can do to help you. I wasn't, I was letting listening to their dreams and vision of what they wanted to build and then just finding a hook where something I could do, something that I brought to the table could help accelerate or help them accomplish the dreams they had for themselves. 
Amen. Beautifully told story. I wonder if there's a time when you when you do go back. I've always been big about our our most <laughs> our biggest mess ups are the ones that teach us the most. And some of the feedback that we get that's the harshest is also the most useful for growing. Do you have a, a memory of a hard feedback or a, a, a failure that stands out that makes you made you stronger? But, you know, I'm always trying to encourage people that it's okay to fail, make a mistake, or it's okay to get, you know, called out on something, even though it hurts. I'm wondering if you have any any memories of those kinds of things happening for you. Yeah, we spent, you know, there, there was a period of time where we spent a couple of years. We wanted to build a college, a university in the country that would be teach practical skills and things. And and we we had partnered up with some other big NGO organizations that were going to work with us in building a, a school of business and engineering and things like that. And just as we got ready to launch the fundraising and to, to do this was when the economic crisis of 2008 came along. None of the things that we had dreamt, none of the things we had told people we were going to do, it became pretty obvious a few months into that period that none of that was going to happen. And so there was a lot of eating crow and and (laughs) that kind of thing and and saying, what, you know, what are we going to do now? Both for our friends in Rwanda, as well as our friends in the United States. I mean, there was just a lot of retraction. The interesting part was we sat back and said, okay, we may have been too bold here in proposing what we were going to do or not do, but we are where we are and what, what, can we do? And we were able to pivot. And what Bridge to Rwanda ended up doing is we identified, we began to, instead of creating our own college, we began to identify really talented young people coming out of high school. And we spent, invest, you know, we created a program that we would spend a year with them, improving their language skills, giving them critical thinking, preparing them to take test prep, and helping them get into the best colleges they could. Then at the on the back end, as they came out of college, we developed a career center that helped them develop a presence about defining what kind of work did you really want to do and connecting them to employers and to internships and giving them coaching on how to be a good employee and, and how to move their career along. So rather than being a college and building a college, we built bookends on both ends of the college experience to help really talented young people get into a great college and then stayed with them through their college experience to help them and accelerate the launching of a career back in Africa when they gave it, when they completed the, the college experience. So we learned to not be afraid to go to the edge of uncertainty and whether you failed or not, there was a there was always the opportunity to pivot. You know, doors close, doors open. And that probably the greatest lesson I've learned, particularly in the last 15 years since I've worked in Rwanda, is to not be afraid to move in the direction of something you feel called to do and to see if even if you're not sure how you're going to do it or how it's all going to get pulled off but look for the right people to show up and the right resources to show up. And whether it works or not, there's a learning there that there will be, you know, it may not turn out the way you thought, but there will be an opportunity to pivot and use that experience to do something else. 
I guess the greatest lesson I've learned in this second half is to not be afraid. Not be afraid. I want to play that back. Have a picture of maybe somebody in their late 30s or 40s wondering where they're headed and where the career is and, and, and <laughs> maybe jogging along and listening. And I want them to hear this idea of don't be afraid. And a phrase you used that really struck me was, you can still live and be alive right on the edge of uncertainty. Yeah. Uncertainty in and of itself is something a lot of us want to move away from. And the way you phrased it was, no, you can live there. You can live on the edge of, of uncertainty as long as that edge is sort of part of you moving in, in a direction of where you're feeling called. And then you can go out there and maybe console yourself that if it doesn't work, two things are going to happen. You will pivot. You will change direction. And you will have learned a ton which yep. will come into play. Did I summarize that close enough? Certainly. Absolutely. The other element I would add is that it is on the edge of uncertainty where you get the chance to see God's hand at work, where you mm. actually see a miracle happen. When you move towards a project that you don't really know how it's going to conclude, you know that people and resources have got to come together and you're not sure exactly how. But then when it does work, and you say, you know, it has, what we have now is beyond what I imagined. And it's because there was a divine hand here that actually made that happen. I get to see a feeling that God has, has had his hand on this all the time. Yeah. And that I'm simply walking in a, in a path that he is directing me and that I can, I will trust him. I will have faith that it will show up. And like I said, the things that haven't worked out, there was always an opportunity to pivot and take what we had already done and move it in a different direction. So I re readily tell people, I don't really know. I'm not always in charge of this. Right. I have high confidence. I'm not afraid, but I'm not really sure how it's going to turn out. Yeah, I love that. It doesn't hurt any leader at any time to be that honest. Because if the leader just believes in the big picture, we will be okay. I'm not afraid. He or she can hold those two energies at the same time. Do I know? Not really. Is it uncertain? Yes. But I'm not afraid. We'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. That's we'll exactly be okay. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's an addictive way to live. Hmm. To be able to respond to the impulses that you have, that's not to say you do things that are reckless or that you do things or that you're not transparent in the uncertainties that you have. But the reality is, is that it makes life quite an adventure to be, be unafraid to step out and respond to these impulses or these ideas that, that come about. Yeah. And to follow them and to pursue them and to see how they, they come out. And then when one is over, we, you know, something else comes along. And so that period of lost passion that I experienced before 50, I've, I've had none of that in the that last since <laughs> almost 20 years, you know, that, wow. that there we go through various phases and projects and, and ideas, but that each one of them has been an exciting, engaging opportunity to try something. When you spoke of this 
being able to live on the edge of uncertainty. Are you connecting that as well with your faith, your faith in God? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess everybody's on some different continuum with respect to what they consider uh, higher power, higher authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I share the same kind of orientation to God, a Christian worldview. What do you say to folks who don't necessarily have that fully formatted or they're they're not there yet? You know, how would you mm-hmm. – does the same principle apply? Can you still step out into this uncertainty and, and sure. be unafraid? Yes, I, I think it can. I mean, the God that I have faith in tells me that a life well lived is one in service to others. Right and in loving others, and in caring for other people as you would care for yourself, and to be to be caring about improving their lives. That's what God tells me, he, how he defines success. My experience looking at people, whether they're people who share my same faith or not, is that people who share that same compulsion to use their skills, talents to improve the lives of others live much more meaningful lives of satisfaction, regardless of it's driven by their faith or not, is that lives committed to service to others is a more meaningful, purposeful, rewarding way to live. You know, I've got wonderful friends who share my passion to help others or to serve others or to do something that's proof who do not share my faith. But we find great joy and fun working together on these projects together to help to serve others. I love it. I think it's absolutely startlingly true. I have the same experience myself and it's taken me quite a while. I'm late to the game of serving others because it's kind of hard to let go. It's taking care of number one. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think it certainly was the same with me. Do you actually connect? I'm wondering if there's a connection. Do you connect the period where you were, have been just losing your passion and having transactional relationships and then coming out of that? Was that also at the time this idea of serving others was emerging and it was giving you, renewing your passion? Are they connected? Yeah, they're they're totally integrated. You okay. know, they, I believe that this period that I began to experience in my late 40s where I became, I'd lost this passion. I began to feel like it was trading work. I have, in my own mind, that was a that was a, the hand of God taking that passion away from me. I have no, in my mind, I have no doubt that it was, it was done intentionally right. to get my attention and that it pushed me into a place of saying that those things which inspired me, motivated me, fired me up for the first 25 years. I can't make them come back. I can't, you know, I can't regenerate those fires. And it made me look at, in my case, it was what did, how did God define success and how should I, what did he care about? Because that's where I'm going to find that passion again. What he directed me to was that what he, how he defined success was to commit your life to improving others, to be thinking about how you're going to use what you have to help other people live. I have no doubt that the door to Rwanda was opened as part of that process to say, this is a country, a nation that needs 
a great deal of that's asking for friends to come help. And it wasn't a um, manual, simply serving, serving. It was coming alongside them thinking strategically about how do you build a country? Right. Right. But it's still about, it wasn't about me. It was their dream. It was their passion. It was what they wanted to do. And I was inspired. Mm. My purpose in life became how do I help these people accomplish what they want to accomplish? Did you find that all of the wisdom, skills, experience, and competencies you had been building up were all coming into utilization, like they were just ready to go? And you, once your spirit was was awakened to this this need and the desire to serve, and then the next thing you know, you turn around, I can help. Turn around, look in your tool chest, and it's loaded. <laughs> yeah, remarkably so. <laughs> I had a sense of, I grew up, my, my grandfather was a te West Texas cowboy and a Pentecostal pastor. My <laughs> parents, as I That's said, awesome. were entrepreneurs. And when I was in college, I really felt I had to, I could choose between a, a life in faith or I could choose a life in business. And I chose a life in business. Right. At 50, when I decided, you know, when I started looking around about how do I get this, this back, all of a sudden I saw that all of these years of being an investment banker and being an accountant and, and being a CEO and an entrepreneur, they were immediately applicable to the opportunities, the projects, the things that where I saw I could help in Rwanda. That was remarkable. I mean, it, you know, I, I was convinced then that God doesn't waste anything. You know, that <laughs> those experiences are not wasted. That he put me into situations where even the role I had as an investment banker versus entrepreneur. As an investment banker, you're always coming alongside some other principal CEO, entrepreneur, and trying to help them build their company. Right. That's the real role of an investment banker is you're a consigliere. You're, you're there to not do – it's not your dreams. It's their dreams, and you're trying to do that. And so those years as an investment banker or as a consultant clearly prepared me to play this support role to a nation and to a country and to the leaders of that country to help them do that. I, my ego doesn't get in the way. I was trained to listen to other people's dreams and then figure out the best way I can help them get it done. The best way to help them. What a great message for anyone to have a heart that's, that's sort of still enough so that you can actually lean into someone else and and genuinely ask them, so tell me, what what are your dreams? Like, where do you want to be? Where are you headed? And and then it fundamentally say, well, I, th I think I can help. Like, here's how I do it. I'm appreciating that more and more even in for myself in my career. I feel that way about coaching. I mean, coaching 10 years ago was I need I need to do coaching. I got to pay the mortgage and uh, I enjoy it. But, you know, I could count how many. Now I find myself when I encounter them, wherever they are on the journey, I just want to help them. The ways you're talking about here are inspirational to me as well, and will remind me of how important it is to, to just to listen to another person's dreams. I have a question that I ask in, in all the podcasts at the uh, towards the end. I wanted to ask it to you too. So imagine you're looking downstream from where you are now on the road of your life and you see this 
23-year-old Dale Dawson, wherever Dale Dawson was at 23. And if you could send back the advice, and, and if you could have only spoken to Dale Dawson back then with knowing what you know now, what would you tell him? What would you advise him? Probably a, a couple of things. One was the idea that that as a businessman that I was choosing a relatively self-centered career path and that God didn't care about business. I have come to realize that being an entrepreneur is a divine calling mm. and that business is an extraordinarily powerful instrument in God's hands to transform people's lives. Mm. And when I started my career, it was belief that whatever faith I had was of no interest to my business career, that these were two compartmentalized part of my life. And today I realized that that was a terrible mistake hmm. and that had I leaned into, okay, God, what do you want me to do with my life and how do you want me to live it? That his desire for me to be a great businessman would be even greater than my own. <laughs> and that, you know, I wouldn't have become less successful as a businessman by leaning into asking him how he wanted me to live and, and how, what could I do for, for him? So that, that's the first one. And I tell every young 20 something in business today that you can be the best businessman in the world and be fully committed to using your life and your business and your career as an instrument in God's hands to do what God wants to do. Those are not in conflict with each other. Yeah. The second thing is this issue of treasuring friendships and and relationships is that I would have enjoyed those relationships more. When I look back at my, my business career, the real leaps came because of real close personal relationships. And when I was younger, you know, I saw them more transactional, but the truth was, had I invested more in building those relationships, I am convinced today I would be more successful as a business person if I had been a better friend to the people who had crossed my path. Amazing. Those are absolutely brilliant, wise, and thank you for sharing them. I thank you for sharing every minute of this podcast episode, Dell. Really richly rewarding. And I know anyone who listens to it will have a, a similar reaction. You're quite a blessing and bring great things to the world. If anybody was listening and they wanted to know more about uh, Bridge to Rwanda, tell them where to go and what they can do to support. Sure. Well, we have a, our, our website is, we tell a pretty comprehensive story about what we do on Bridge to Rwanda. And it's it's the, the two is the number two, bridge to Rwanda.org. In terms of ways that people can help, you know, we, we've helped with right now, we have over 150 young East Africans from Rwanda, Congo, Burundi, South Sudan, who are on scholarships attending colleges here in the United States. Every one of those young people need host families and friends that they can count on while they're here. They also, we're always raising money so that they can go back home 
stay connected to their country and to have internships and and also just to uh, to provide other financial support. Most of them, all of them have to win full scholarships from their schools, but all schools don't cover all the expenses okay. that they need. So we are always looking to raise personal friendships as well as financial support for these young people who who we are building into a fellowship of young leaders that are going to transform Africa. Beautiful. Well, thank you. And I want to thank everyone who's listening. This has been another wonderful opportunity to learn from guests who are so generous with their time. Thank you, Dale, for uh, sharing so much of yourself and your story with us today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all again on another episode of Sheer Clarity. Thanks for now.